Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea, that is the Red Sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the desert. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And skipping down to verse 10, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So there's some lessons in there for you and me tonight. Unless you think, well, I'm above these lessons of the wilderness. Think again. Whoever thinks he stands, let's let him take heed lest he fall. So with that warming introduction... We turn to Exodus chapter 16. And we left off with the children of Israel at an oasis. An oasis that sounds, by its description, like a great place, sort of an ancient Palm Springs. Twelve springs of water, 70 palm trees. I would like that. And as they camp there, they're now moving, and you have your map also in your notebook, that shows you how they go from the Red Sea southward down to Elim, further south by the Gulf of Suez, down to a place called Rephidim, which we're going to read about hopefully if we get into it tonight in chapter 17. Interesting lessons. Let's pray. Father, this evening as we come into this place, we simply come into a building like any other. However, this building has been set apart for your glory. And what is most important is that we are in your presence and we ask that your watchful eye would examine our hearts, penetrating with your gaze, using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to cut away those fleshly parts, to cut away those things, Lord, that do not glorify you. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room might now be open to the things of your Spirit, that though we might be young as a Christian or a more mature believer or perhaps not even a believer tonight, that your Spirit would speak to each one of us, drawing us to that place of total commitment. In Jesus' name, amen. Now up to this point, God has done it all. He was the one through His power that has worked everything out like clockwork, just like he said. All the children of Israel had to do is stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Yet that was hard for them to do. All they had to do is just hang loose and watch God work, but they couldn't even do that. They complained already. It wasn't by their power that they were rescued from Egypt. It wasn't their great strength or their hands over the sea that caused the water to part. It was all the Lord. So far, it was all done for them. They had an incredible divine guidance system in a pillar 
a fire and a cloud that went by night and day. And they were just watching God work in awe as God was going before them and protecting them behind. That's also true of us, isn't it? Salvation is never earned. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. Yet not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, lest any one of us should boast. None of us tonight can boast in who or what we are. God has done it all. Unless, of course, you're not a Christian, then you can just boast in your sinful life. There's not much to boast in. It's better to take it under the redemption of God. We saw last week probably, if not the greatest, one of the greatest miracles in the whole Old Testament. It's sort of a state-of-the-art miracle. It's certainly the miracle that forms the hinge that for the rest of the generations of the children of Israel, they will look back to. They will always, even to this day, at Passover, look back to the fact that their forefathers were redeemed from the hand of Pharaoh by a stronger arm, the arm of the Lord. Yet, true to human nature, they complained. Though they have seen God work in so many awesome ways, they've seen changes, they've seen that Red Sea open and close, they will soon fall back to that place of complaining. It seems just like human nature. It really does. No matter where we are, no matter what we've seen, it just seems to be that natural proclivity of man to complain, to not be content. And we'll certainly see that tonight and several chapters ahead of us. Miracles only dazzle for a moment. If you require miracles to keep you going, you are a very weak person. Because if you experience a miracle, then you have to experience a greater one just to keep you going. If you're the kind of person who says, I will only believe if I see some dazzling thing, well then as soon as the dazzling thing doesn't happen, where will your faith be? Either you will feel guilty because you haven't experienced the miracle you thought you should, or you'll say, God has forsaken me, God has left me. The children of Israel will be saying that quite a bit, as we see. Our memories are short. I've discovered in my own life that the more I read the Bible, the more of it I forget. Now, the more of it I remember, I think, oh yeah, boy, I remember that part. It's part of my life now. But the more I read, I think, oh, I remember reading that now, but I've forgotten all about it in the meantime. It seems like we need to be constantly refreshed about spiritual things, right? That's the whole reason that we come and fellowship weekly, some of us more often, because we forget. It seems like we often forget the things we ought to remember and we remember the things we ought to forget. And Peter, when he wrote to the early church in his second epistle, he said, Brethren, I will not be negligent, therefore, to always keep you in remembrance of these things, though you already know and are established in the present truth. As long as I am in this body, literally, I'm going to jog your memory. I'm going to prick your conscience with the things that you already know, you're already established in them. But we have a tendency to forget those things and go, Oh, yeah. 
Now I remember. And so God will bring to their remembrance these things. Now, a couple words about complaining, since we're all used to it. Since all of us engage in it in some form or another from time to time, you and I ought to be warned about what it can result in. Paul warned in Romans chapter 1 of the results of people who lose a thankful heart and begin in turn complaining rather than thanking. In Romans chapter 1 he said, When they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, neither were they thankful. And then after that are several verses that tell us of the results of that kind of a heart. He goes on to say, They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The next time you feel like complaining, God hasn't been fair to me. God hasn't blessed me like He blessed so many other people. How come I'm not blessed like that person? Just remember that probably your garbage disposal eats better than a third of the world. And God doesn't owe you a thing. And be careful lest you ever say, Give me what I deserve. Never ask God for that. Ask God for His mercy and His grace because you realize you don't deserve a thing. The children of Israel had forgotten how bad it was in Egypt. Tonight they will look backwards and remember a very tiny portion and they'll magnify it as if Egypt was this awesome resort instead of a prison for them. And they'll magnify the few good moments that they had and they'll forget all about God's goodness and God's faithfulness. You know, it's better to be in the desert with God than in Egypt with Pharaoh. It's better to be in the middle of nowhere as long as God led you there than it is to be in the palace of Pharaoh without the Lord. That's true across the board. I've often thought of all of the exotic places that the Lord would want to send me. I have a natural love for water. I grew up around it. I love it. I used to go to Newport Beach with my dad and go deep sea fishing and go surfing with my brothers and I lived right by the ocean and, you know, it's just, it's a part of my life. I love it. And there's a lot of great places in this earth. And the Lord knows I have that natural love and perhaps the Lord knows that it could become an idol. I don't know. The Lord, knowing I have that great love, decided to send me to a place with an abundance of water. Underground. I hear it's all underground. <laughs> but it's better to be where the Lord wants you than to be out of His will in the best, most exotic place in the world. You know the disciples found that out. It's better to be in a storm with Jesus than anywhere else without Him. The safest place is in that boat. Even though they said, Lord, don't you care? Like it's going to sink, right? Jesus, the God of the universe, is sleeping in the bottom of the boat. I'm sure it's going to sink. 
And just remember, whatever boat you're in, are you a believer? Well, he's in that boat with you. Are you going to sink? No. Well, I might die. You'll go to heaven. Listen, it's a fail-safe operation. It really is. All your bases are covered. It's better to just, hey, Lord, I surrender to you. It's better to just be in the center of your will. Now, they complain. We'll see this often. And uh, lest you become weary of them, and, and lest we focus upon their complaint, I don't want you to do that. I want you to focus on God's response. What did God do? Did he rain down fire and brimstone on them? He rained down bread from heaven on them. Oh, I hear so many people say, the God of the Old Testament is so different from the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and patience and generosity. The God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment. People who say that never have read it. God rained down bread for them to sustain them. He's going to test them. He'll reprimand them. But always out of love to bring them back. Uh, they're on their way to Mount Sinai. Keep in mind, they're on the move. They're traveling to a place in modern times known as Jabel Musa. If you're Arabic, that's how you'd say it. We call it Mount Sinai. It's a lot easier that way. I just got a fax today from Israel. And uh, our 1995 tour will include going to Mount Sinai. So you might be reading about it tonight and get all excited and think, oh, I don't have enough uh, for 94. Don't worry about it. We're going in 95. So you've got over a year to save up for that. We're going to begin in Cairo and have two nights in Cairo. And we'll see uh, some of the uh, treasures of the kings and the pyramids in Giza, Egypt. We'll take a bus uh, sort of on the route of the Exodus and take you to Mount Sinai, spend the night at Mount Sinai. Early in the morning, beginning at about 5.30. No. It takes about two hours. About 3.30 or 4, we begin climbing Mount Sinai. You think, hey, listen, it's a it's once-in-a-lifetime deal. You got it's awesome. You start real early, and there's steps that are carved in the stone. <clears throat> there weren't when Moses was around, but they've done it now. And you can climb to the top. It's about a two-hour climb, an hour and a half if you're in excellent shape. But people of all ages have made it. And you get up there to watch the sunrise on top of Mount Sinai. And no matter what time of the year you choose, and we're going to do it in May, it's, you'll need a heavy coat on top of Mount Sinai in the middle of the, that desert peninsula. It's cold at that elevation. And you'll be able to see all of Mount Sinai and imagine the tents of Israel encamped as that mountain was quaking. And then after that, we'll go to Elat, which is ancient Etz... Um, well, anyway, it's Elat now. Etzion Geber is the ancient name for it, where the children of Israel stopped on their way up to the, to the Promised Land. We'll spend a night in Elat and a day in Elat, and it's right on the uh, Red Sea, and it's beautiful snorkeling and uh, diving, and um, oh, we'll be by the water. It'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> so let's look at verse 1. <laughs> and they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, or Sin, as it was originally pronounced, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. The whole wilderness, oh, excuse me, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, 
Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. Yeah, right. This is called selective memory disorder. And we all have it. When somebody speaks to you in a conversation, you often zero in on certain things that you want to zero in on. You might think a certain way and you miss the entire point of the conversation, but you just pick up on this one little thing. Oh, we had died back there. It was so much better. We had food to the full. I wouldn't have been a good Moses. I'd have walked out. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now Israel, remember, carried very little food with them. They had to leave in a hurry. That's what Passover was all about. You eat with your loins girded with the rope, staff in your hand, sandals on your feet. When it's time to go, you just split. You don't get to pack the trunk up and carry three suitcases and one carry-on. You just go. They had been out there for about a month and a half. Keep in mind, these are moms and dads with kids and animals. And that eats a lot of food. And the food is running out. They haven't taken much with them. But they have forgotten God's provision up to this point. I mean, a God who can open the Red Sea, give me a break. Is God going to bring you out in the desert to kill you? Is He going to spend all of that energy judging the gods of Egypt, judging Pharaoh, taking care of you? Say, oh, by the way, I did all that just to kill you. But often in a time of crisis, we don't think spiritually. Our flesh rises up and they start complaining. Notice they speak about all the food they had. In the book of Numbers, they start talking about things like, we remember the leeks, oh, we remember the onions and the garlic, which really isn't food that you, you just don't sit down and eat an onion or a piece of garlic. Uh, at least you wouldn't have many friends if you did. These are items that aren't staple items. These are, are things that you just season your food with. But this is what happened. They've been gone now for a month and a half. The meager portions, whatever they were that they had in Egypt, in their imagination has been enlarged as if they sat at a banquet table and feasted. They were slaves. They cried out in bondage. You know that is so typical. Whenever we lose our first love relationship with Jesus Christ and we're not content with Him alone, we start looking back to the things of this world. Oh, I remember how good it was. Really? It was good? I mean, evaluate it. You were apart from God, Paul said. You had no hope of the future. You were on your way to hell. Your sins weren't atoned for. And what about all those lonely times you had? Oh yeah, but I had a lot of girlfriends. And they all left you. <laughs> yeah, but all those parties, all my friends. Yeah, but what about those nights you woke up in your own vomit? What about the next morning when you felt empty and lonely because they all left? The party's over. I have a big headache. The devil will often magnify those tiny little times as if they're big, bright horizons and hide from your mind all the dark sides, the dark spots. It's always better. The worst that God has for us is better than the best the world has for us, especially ultimately. It's a lie, ultimately. 
Now this illustrates what Paul said in Galatians 5.17. The flesh, that is our old nature, wars or lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you do not do those things that you want to do. There is a battle going on as soon as you become a Christian. Now one more side note before we go on. Just the fact that this is mentioned, the complaint, seems to bear eloquent testimony to the veracity of the narrative. I mean, if you were trying to write your own history, you'd probably omit this. You wouldn't say, yeah, here's our history. We're a bunch of complainers. The fact that it is included, that it shows all of the flaws, all of the warts, all of the background, as bad as it is, shows the accuracy of the narrative. It's one of those small things that helps to bolster the uh, faithfulness of the historic narrative. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Behold, I will rain, not fire and brimstone, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether, <coughs> excuse me, whether they will walk in my law or not. You see, the children of Israel needed to be weaned from what they had in Egypt. And they needed to be weaned through testings so that they would rely completely upon God's provision. They needed to be tested. And God didn't give them the test all at one time. The Amalekites don't come till the next chapter. More severe trials don't come till later on. But just at the beginning, God lets them get a little bit hungry. Later on, let them get a little bit thirsty. And he's testing them. What will they do? How much will they trust me? Do they rely upon my faithfulness? Will they look back and embrace their own history and move forward with faith? Or will they in disbelief complain? And of course, they fail the test, but God is gracious again. Now, we should interject something. The book of Numbers tells us that the instigators of the complaints were a bunch of spiritual freeloaders known as the mixed multitude. They were not all Jewish under the covenant, relying upon the word of God and the promises of the patriarchs. A lot of them were along for the ride, either by marriage or just, hey, I want to escape judgment. We saw what happened in Egypt. I'm out of here. And some of them were just spiritual freeloaders along for the ride, and they incited the rest of the children of Israel uh, to complain. Jesus called them wheat, uh, excuse me, tares among the wheat. Uh, at best they were carnal, at worst they were satanic plants to sort of cause a general complaint among all of the people. Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. You know, the first step backwards is a look backwards. You go, oh, I don't know about this Christianity stuff. Oh, I don't know about following Jesus. It looks pretty tough. Hold on just a minute, Lord. Let me look back. Oh, look at that. Whoa. That's always the first step back. And Satan always does that. Gets you to look back, blinds you from the truth, and gives you selective memory disorder. Next verse. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. See, here's the test right here. Herein is the test. Will they believe me and obey? This is pretty awesome. God's going to rain this manna down, this bread from heaven. Will they trust me on the sixth day that what they take in will be enough for two days? 
I mean, I fed them every day this week. They should, but will they? Or will they disobey me, and on the seventh day, when they should be resting, will they go out and gather it? And so God is testing their hearts. Some of these people came to despise this manna, as it is called, and we'll see why in just a minute. Some of them call it later on light food. You know, in other words, it's just lightweight. We want some meat, man. This is just lightweight stuff. This is Cheerios. It's light food. And they start despising it because they want flesh. Which shows me that though they were delivered from Egypt, their hearts weren't. In their hearts, they wanted to be back in Egypt. Acts chapter 7 says, In their hearts they turned back again to Egypt. You can be delivered from the world and still have a lot of the world left in you. Your heart can be married in fantasy or in desire and lust to those things that the world had to offer that don't glorify Jesus Christ. In their hearts they were led back to Egypt. Now there is a pattern that you're seeing developing right here in verse 5. No cooking was to take place on Shabbat, as it's called in Hebrew. Shabbat, Saturday, the seventh day. A Shabbat begins Friday evening at sundown and lasts till the next evening. No cooking was to be done. You just gather the food, you prepare it in advance, and uh, you eat what you have uh, on the Sabbath, on the next day. Now today in Israel, they have some interesting ways of applying this law. They have electronic devices that they'll cook it in advance and they'll prepare it, uh, but they'll keep it plugged in and the heat on throughout the Sabbath. So technically, they're not cooking the food. The heat began the day before. And uh, it says you can't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. They didn't. They kindled it the day before and they're just enjoying the heat electrically through the next day. They have all sorts of interesting ways to get around some of these laws. And they're very technical and very precise in their application. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron said to the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your murmurings against the Lord. Now that's interesting. Who did they complain against? Moses and Aaron. But Moses is not letting himself live under that. He realizes that though they're saying, Hey, you're the leader, man. It's your fault. He's saying, your complaint isn't against me. You're complaining directly against God. So I step out of the way. Your complaint is against His provision. Lord, here's your murmurings which you make against Him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your murmurings. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I've often tried to imagine in my mind what it was to look, what it was like to wake up in the morning and see that glorious pillar of cloud, a reminder that God is around. And at night, that light of that fire burning over later on the tabernacle, but abiding with them in the desert. Because during the days of the tabernacle, they weren't allowed inside. They just saw a tent structure. But as long as that cloud is around, they knew that God was around. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. How gracious God is. He didn't smite them. He gave them bread from heaven, quails, which are migratory birds. In the springtime of the year, in huge numbers, they come around from Arabia and the uh, Persian Gulf area, and especially around the Red Sea, there are huge numbers of quail. The thing about quail is they travel often with the wind, and after being in flight for a long period of time, they're exhausted. And it's relatively easy to catch them, either to bean them with the rock or to even grab them with your hands. And so God brought them. Verse 14, the layer of dew lifted there in the surface of the wilderness. There was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. In some margins of some Bibles, they will tell you that the word in Hebrew for what is it is mana. But in Hebrew, it's maze. What is this? That's how a Hebrew today would say, What is this? They'd say maze. Ma is what? Uh, the common greeting in Israel is mashlom cha, literally, how is your peace? Or what is the state of your peace? Maze, what is this? So, what does manna mean? A, it's an ancient form of saying what is it, or there might be a better explanation. The Revised Standard Version, though I think it is a poor translation, has a reference note in the side margin. And this is what it reads. Instead of saying, what is it, it says, or it could read, the children of Israel said to one another, it is manna. Now this is what I'm getting at. Probably the word man is an Egyptian word. The Arabs have a term for this uh, sweet honey-like substance that comes from shrubs in the Sinai Desert, and it exudes in heavy drops around May and June. And uh, the Arabic term, the old Egyptian term, and the Arabic term today is man. This is man. And so they looked at the stuff on the ground. It tasted like honey and honey and wafers. And so they said, look, it's, the only thing that they were familiar with was man from Egypt. It's mana. It's something we're familiar with. Those are uh, perhaps the two explanations for the term manna. Either they said, what is it? Or this is like that substance that comes from that shrub. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person. That's about less than two quarts. According to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. And the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Now this is interesting. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. We're not surprised. 
but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Rotten manna. Nothing worse than rotten manna. And Moses was angry with them, so they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. Now Jesus, in John chapter 6, will use this incident as a spiritual analog to himself. He will say, Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. I am the bread which has come down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Here they are, needing provision, needing their hunger assuaged in the wilderness, and God provides this bread from heaven. Jesus is saying, I am the bread that will eternally satisfy you. Now, the prodigal son had to find that out. He left the side of his father and searched for new terrain, new horizons. He took his father's inheritance, squandered it all, had a blast till he ran out. And then he came to his senses and he says, you know, this is pretty dumb. It was a lot better hanging out at dad's house. I'm going to go back and repent. And he did. And he found out that everything in this world couldn't satisfy him. And he went back and asked to be satisfied once again at his father's table, and his father received him. We're going to see that, especially toward the end tonight, that Jesus Christ is a type of manna and that nothing else can satisfy. Now, things can satisfy you for a while. You might be really saving for that new car. I mean, there's nothing like that new car, that 94 model, that red paint job. I mean, I'll be satisfied when I get that car. You know what? The day you buy it, you'll be stoked. But that first scratch... The first time you're in the mall and somebody opens his door and leaves a ding, you say, well, I'll park diagonally. Yeah, but then they'll come with keys and scratch it because they don't like that either. And you'll be excited for a while, but that materialistic thing won't satisfy you. Only for a while it will. And if you try to satisfy yourself with certain relationships apart from God, oh, you'll be excited for a while. If you try to satisfy yourself with the bread of religion, you'll be satisfied for a while. But it won't last. Jesus said, whoever eats of me will never hunger or partakes of me. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. So it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said to them, that is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, the holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today. Boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until the morning. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, let me skip ahead for a minute. There's something, this manna is wild stuff, I'm telling you. It's unlike anything I've ever heard of before. Uh, in one portion of the Bible, it's called the food of angels. Uh, it's called bread from heaven. Maybe it's sort of like angel's food cake, I don't know, but... The idea, it's just a strange substance. Whatever exactly it was, it had enough vitamins to take care of their needs. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses said, Listen, those 40 years while you were out in the desert, your feet did not swell. Medical missionaries tell us that one of the reasons in the Orient that people's feet swell is because of the sameness of diet without the necessary various nutrients to balance their diet. So whatever this manna was, it had enough vitamins to keep him going. 
It talks about uh, how the Lord commanded in these verses to keep the Sabbath. What's interesting is the law has not been given yet. This is pre-Sinai here. The law of Moses and the giving of the Sabbath has not become a law yet. However, God commanded them to keep the Sabbath, and they were sons and daughters of the patriarchs, and evidently Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth, passed the Sabbath on to them because that was the day that God rested from creation. And later on, it will be a fixed law uh, in the Mosaic law. Why did God give the Sabbath? More on that later, but simply this. I think that God knew the natural tendency of man to become occupied with daily things that crowd out our worship of Him. How easy it is to let daily routines just sort of crowd out what's most important and God takes second and third place. Oh God, listen, I'll get to you, really. Just hang out here. I've got to do something. This is important. God knows the tendency of life to do that and so He commanded the Sabbath, guard your time with the Lord. Keep it a priority. You want to be a satisfied, fruitful person? Guard your daily time with God and make it a priority. I tell you, it means all the difference between strength and weakness. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will find it or not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it on the seventh, which is the Sabbath. There will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. See, they failed the test. He said, I'm going to test you. Well, these people failed it. The Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Remember, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. During his time, the Pharisees had reduced it to a, a set of rules and regulations. Oh, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Jesus said, listen, the whole purpose was it was a gift to man. Man was not meant for the Sabbath, but vice versa. So the people rested. And the house of Israel called its name manna. Here's a description of it. It was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Interesting stuff. It provided all of the nutrients. Here it says it's like wafers and honey. In Numbers chapter 11, here's another description of it. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in their mills or beat it in mortar and baked it in pans, and the taste of it was like the taste of fresh oil. The idea is it tasted like fresh olive oil. In other words, this manna was like an all-around everything, sort of like tofu, perhaps, today. People do all sorts of interesting things with that stuff. They could grind it. They could bake it. Perhaps they put it with milk and made a cereal out of it, you know, like manna flakes or something. There was just all sorts of ways to prepare it. Maybe they had manna burgers and, of course, there was manna cotti that they had and... What? Banana bread, there's all sorts of applications. Forty years of this stuff. But it could be ground, it could be baked. 
like into a manna souffle. Uh, they had it, and, and it probably tasted uh, differently depending on how they cooked it. Maybe Mrs. Moses had a thousand and one different ways how to cook manna. I don't know. Then Moses said, we better move on. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot, that is an earthen jar, and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Now that's something that he will do later on. The testimony is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which you'll read about in the book of Exodus. In the Ark of the Covenant, as a testimony and memorial, was kept three things. A jar of manna, the two tablets of the law, <coughs> and rose, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. They were kept within, uh, in the tabernacle. It was to be kept as a testimony. To learn a lesson. What was the lesson? The lesson is, why don't we trust God? Here's a pot of manna. God fed our ancestors in the middle of nowhere with this bread that came from heaven. It lasted them 40 years and their feet didn't swell. I guess we better trust God. That was the whole point of the manna. And it was to be kept as a memorial, a symbol. God uses symbols throughout the Old Testament. In the wilderness, they complain. God sends serpents to bite them. And as they're kicking the bucket right and left, Moses intercedes and God says, Moses, I want you to make a symbol. I want you to take a serpent, a brazen serpent, wrap it around a staff and hold it up in the wilderness. Whoever looks upon that, whoever looks to that by faith will be healed. Later on, that same symbol became an icon of worship. And here is the danger of any symbol. Though God can use a symbol to remind us of a spiritual lesson, people have some kind of natural affinity to worship that symbol as an icon. Later on in their history, they looked to this brass pole and they started worshiping it. One of the reasons I believe that the Ark of the Covenant has never been found, uh, whether by Indiana Jones or by any other archaeologist through history, is I think if it was found today, people would worship it. Just like people have this supposed shroud of Jesus Christ and they worship it, or supposed fragments of the cross and they worship that fragment. They worship the creation rather than the Creator. And there's so many places in Israel, it's interesting, there are very few authenticated holy places in Israel. We go to the Sea of Galilee and we think, well, uh, Somewhere around here, this miracle, we don't know where, but there's a lot of miles. On the Mount of Olives, where Jesus ascended into heaven, there's three separate churches called the Church of Ascension, where they believe Jesus ascended into heaven from that very spot. And you go over there and you watch people bow down to this spot, start worshiping this rock. There's even one place on the Mount of Olives that has the supposed footprint of Jesus embedded in the rock, where he kind of left his footprint when he launched. <laughs> and if you go there and you pay the right amount of money, they will let you come in and kiss the rock. <laughs> what is it with people? 
If they were to only read their Bibles, they would see that all of those churches got the spot wrong. For we read that Jesus ascended into heaven on the other side of the Mount of Olives near Bethany. These churches aren't even close to the vicinity. Oh, but that's the place. So if you ever go to Israel with us, don't expect to go in many churches. We won't take you in them. A church is a church is a church anywhere unless you're interested in some of the ancient building and medieval, those kinds of things. But rather just see the land. That's why I love the Sea of Galilee so much. It's just, it looks very natural. And it's too big to put a church over. And so it's great to just hang out there and not worship any spot or any edifice or any stone, but just say, Lord, we worship you. This is where it all began. Verse 35, And the children of Israel ate this manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land, the land of Canaan, Israel. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Now before we move on, there are some ways that I've outlined how that the Word of God, the Bible that you hold in your hands, is very much like manna. There's an analogy, a typology between the Word of God and ancient manna. Number one, manna was supernaturally given. It's called bread from heaven. Even as the Word of God is not the Word of man, it's the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, Paul said, for instruction in righteousness and so forth. It's supernaturally given. Number two, manna had to be eaten, not admired. They didn't pick it up and go, check it out. Manna. They'd die if they did that. They had to appropriate it. They had to consume it. So it is with the Word of God. The Word of God isn't meant to just be underlined or admired. Many people have Bibles that they just use to press flowers with. But they don't appropriate the promises of God. Blessed is the man who meditates on it day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So they had to eat it. Number three, it had to be gathered every single day. It wouldn't last for the next day. It would breed worms and it would stink. So it is with the Word of God. Folks, you and I need the Bible every day of our lives. I think there needs to be a systematic application of the Bible every day. Just like there needs to be a systematic application of food to our bodies every day. If you eat irregularly, you will suffer for it physically. If you try to have one big meal a week, Sunday, I'm going to eat, man. After church, I'm going to just pig out. And that's going to be all that I'm going to eat for the whole week. You know what? You're going to be pretty sick. You need a balanced diet daily. And yet so many Christians are weak and sick because they try to have one meal on Sunday, but they don't appropriate it and eat it daily. You've got to pick it up daily and eat it. Number four, it was gathered in the morning. It says when the layer of dew left, early, early in the morning, there was that manna. That's when they would go and pick it up. I'm not hard and fast on this, but the best way to start your day is with the Word of God and in spending time with God. I think that if people, if Christians would do this first thing in the morning, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that those who are sick and weak spiritually would grow strong and be prepared for the temptations that they're going to face that day. 
Make it a habit. Oh, but I got to work early. Well, then get up a little earlier. Oh, but I'm go go to bed so late. Well, then go to bed a little earlier. Turn off the late thing, whatever you're watching. Devote yourself to it. Number five, it had to be obtained by diligence. They didn't just open their mouths and the manna fell in, right? They didn't just wake up in the tent with manna in their mouths. They had to go out and get it. They had to be diligent. Now, this is important. It takes diligent study. As the writer of Proverbs said, My son, if you receive my words, treasure my commands, incline your ears to wisdom, and apply your heart to understanding. If you cry out for discernment, lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and you will find the knowledge of God. You've got to want it. You've got to be diligent. Study to show yourselves approved. Workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Number six, they had to gather it by stooping. They didn't pick it off trees. They had to get on their knees or they had to stoop and bend down to get it. And that's the way we ought to approach the Word of God. Dependence upon Him. Lord, give me light. As David said, open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wondrous things from Your Word. Approaching it as a humble servant would approach a meal. Number seven, manna was incomprehensible to the natural man. The mixed multitude said, what is it? Even as the Word of God is incomprehensible to the natural man, he doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. He looks at Bible study. I don't have time for Bible study. Because they don't have time to nourish their souls. They don't care about their souls. We did a wedding yesterday, and somebody came up to me this morning, one of the brothers, and he said, it was really interesting overhearing the conversations of some of the visitors who came to your wedding yesterday. I performed a wedding right up here, and uh, they went to the reception. And he said, they were discussing Calvary Chapel. And I said, well, interesting, what did they say? So, well, you know, they, they, they kept marveling. They said, you know, it's funny, they only read out of the Bible. It's the only book they have. They read this thing, and they study this thing all the time. It's this non-denominational thing, and they focus on the Bible all the time. And it was like an enigma to them. Why do they read the Bible? It pays. Number eight, it was despised by the mixed multitude. They had no desire for spiritual things. It was all a waste of time, this spiritual nonsense. Again, these are the people who come to church, own a Bible, it might be nicely bound, have gold pages on it, but it's nothing that you use all the time. It's just this nice little ornament that you use once a week. You carry your Bible in and it looks kind of neat. You have the right colors with the right suit and that's about it. And it says they fell a-lusting and they said, who will give us flesh to eat? Now we have 10 minutes to cover all of chapter 17. I doubt we'll do it, but we have a little bit of time. All the congregation of the children of Israel set out on a journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. Now, if you follow your map, they're still going south. They're not far from the Gulf of Suez, which is all part of the Red Sea on both sides. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. This is probably the upper part called the Oasis of Ferain. 
the most fertile part in all of the Sinai Peninsula. We hope to show you part of that if you come on our tour to Egypt and to Israel next time. Now, here they are being tested. First of all, they had no food. What'd they do? God graciously gave them food, quail and bread, from heaven. Now they don't have any water. Surely they're going to trust God, right? I mean, after all, the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud and fire, and bread from heaven, oh, no problem, we don't have water. Not so. They complain. You know, their attitude is this. This is the attitude of the natural man almost. You think God's going to furnish a table out here in the desert? I mean, we're in the desert. How can, where are we going to get water from? The Red Sea's close. The Gulf of Suez, it's salt water. We can't drink that. Actually, God can provide a table in the wilderness. David said, The Lord prepareth a table for me in the midst of my enemies there in the wilderness. God has ways that you know not of. God has things tucked up His sleeve that could blow your mind. God's not limited by your circumstance, only by your unbelief. It says, And they limited the Holy One of God, David said, by their unbelief. They start crying out. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, oh, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? You know what that means? Hebrew word is nisah. It means to prove the character of a person because you don't believe what he said is true or you don't believe what he promised will come to pass. You doubt his character. You doubt his veracity. And so you're tempting him. Hmm, let me see if it's true or not. I don't think it is true. He said, why do you nisah or tempt the Lord? Now they're crying out to Moses again. And here's a problem and a fault. And I see it as a natural tendency with man. And that is to expect a human a human leader to provide what only God can provide. How's Moses going to do anything? He's following the cloud too. He's following that pillar of fire too. Think Moses, oh yeah, well I got this water thing tucked up my sleeve here. Watch this. Whew. He didn't know it was going to happen. But they looked to a man to provide them something only God can provide. The scripture says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you know what? That goes for me too. I'm your pastor, but the Lord is your shepherd. God can provide for you and do for you. I cannot. He's my shepherd too. I need him. I rely on him just as much as you do. I'm in complete and utter dependence on God's provision, just like you are. They complained to Moses. He couldn't help it. Verse 3, the people thirsted for water and the people murmured against Moses and said, What is this, that you have brought us out in Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses did the right thing. He cried out to the Lord. And he said, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Not only were they angry with him, they wanted to lynch him, stone him. In the New Testament, Remember the crowd that saw Jesus come down the Mount of Olives on that donkey? And what'd they say? Hosanna! Save now, Lord! And they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the Son of David, the Messiah. A few days later, what did they cry? Crucify him. The crowds of Jerusalem that said, Save now, turned and said, Crucify him. 
Crowds are so fickle. You learn that at sporting events. You do one good thing as a baseball player. I'm sure Johnny Wetland knows that as a pitcher for the Montreal Expos. You throw one pitch, they love you. You throw a bad pitch or you don't. You walk the guy, boo. Those crowds can exert a lot of pressure. Moses is feeling under the gun. As far as they were concerned, he just struck out. He said, Lord, what am I going to do with these people? A true sign of spiritual growth is not how you act at church, but how you act when the bottom drops out, when you don't see provision. And what do you say? Well, these guys started complaining against Moses and the Lord. A.W. Pink said, They would rather lean on a cobweb of human resources than upon the strength of an omnipotent, all-wise, and infinitely gracious God. Now Moses is praying for his life, but he will not retaliate. He's not going to get angry. He's going to follow the godly example of the Messiah who will come, Jesus Christ, who, though he was uh, uh, tempted, no, though it says, um, uh, when he was reviled, he reviled not. Now Moses is going to just mellow it out and be very patient with these people. He just cries out to the Lord. He says, what shall I do? It's actually a wise move. When you don't know what to do, what do you do? You ought to just stop and say, Lord, I now am really in a box. And I need you to do something. I don't know what it is. Either speak to me or get me out of this or glorify but somehow do something. James said, if anyone among you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God gives liberally, freely to all men who ask him. But ask in faith, nothing wavering. And so he says, Lord, what shall I do? It was a good move. The Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod. That was a symbol of his authority and leadership with which you struck the river and go. Now, what did he do? He took an elder, the elders of Israel. Why? Because they represent the people. He wants the elders to see the miracle God's going to perform. The children of Israel are complaining. Let the elders see what God's going to do. They'll go back to the children of Israel and say, Hey, don't complain. Let me tell you what I just saw. So Moses takes them, takes the rod, which was what? An instrument of judgment at one time. He held it over the Nile River, turned to blood. He used his rod in the judgments of the plagues of Israel. Now, that which became a symbol of judgment will become a symbol of mercy and provision. Even as it struck the waters and cursed the waters, the same rod will bring forth water from the rock. Behold, I will stand before you there in the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the name of the place Massah and Mirabah, because the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, there is a typology here, and we'll close with this tonight. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where we began, Paul said, They did all eat the same spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Throughout the scripture, God is given the title of the rock. Here's a few scriptures. Moses said the children of Israel forsook God and lightly esteemed the rock or the foundation of their salvation. David said the Lord is my rock and my fortress. 
He says, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And of course, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. It wasn't upon Peter. He's not the rock. If he is, we're all in a heap of trouble. The rock is Jesus Christ and the profession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's what the church is built upon. Now, why is God likened unto a rock? Well, first of all, a rock is strong and stable. Rock can stand when nothing else can stand. There's stability to it. Lead me to that rock that is higher than I. It's a place of stability. It's a refuge. It's also durable. It outlasts everything. Um, ships have found that out. There's wrecks of ships near the shores of oceans that have been busted and beaten by the rocks, but the rock still stands. Now, Jesus Christ used this analogy. He said, fall upon this rock and be broken, or the rock will fall on you and grind you to powder. It's best to fall upon the rock of Jesus Christ, humbly cast ourselves before him and build our foundation upon a solid foundation, the rock of Christ, our life lived for him, then to in judgment have that rock crush us. Even as Daniel saw that vision of that stone from heaven smiting the image to dust, growing up and becoming a kingdom. That's the choice. Fall upon Jesus Christ and be humbly broken before him and repent of your sin, or in judgment he will grind you to powder. That's the choice. The great thing about Jesus Christ, like we'll see about this rock, Moses strikes it and brings forth water. It refreshed the children of Israel. In the middle of a desert of rocks, water came forth in the middle of it. Now Jesus said, whoever drinks and believes in me, this water, will never thirst again, will be satisfied. What are you looking for for satisfaction this evening in your life? What well do you drink from? Do you drink from the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ, or are there other wells that entice you? Jesus said, "My people have committed uh, Jeremiah. My people have committed two evils." God spoke through Jeremiah. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, they have broke. They have hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. An awful lot of people are drinking out of the wrong well. They go from well to well to well, relationship to relationship to pursuit to owning this, and they're never satisfied. They're always thirsty. You can tell they're always thirsty because they keep hopping around. If they were satisfied, they'd stay there and drink from it the rest of their lives. Some people think, oh, you know, if I only had a two million dollars or a million dollars, I'd be happy. And the millionaire gets a million dollars, what does he want? Two, three million, four million. I've read quotes from millionaires and they speak of their misery. Oh man, but if I got this new drug, if I had this hit of cocaine. Well, if it's true that drugs will satisfy you, then the drug addict ought to be the happiest person in the world. The heroin addict ought to just be exuberant all the time. If sex could fulfill, then the prostitute ought to be the happiest person in the world. 
Oh, if I just had that right person and had that exhilarating moment, but no. All of those satisfy briefly. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but only Jesus Christ can satisfy your soul for a lifetime. Father, tonight we close with these thoughts. That this rock, figuratively speaking of Jesus Christ, that solid foundation, only He has the ability to satisfy completely. And to what extent we experience satisfaction is the same extent to which we have been drinking deeply from the waters of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we as your people would not be guilty of those evils forsaking the fountain of living waters and drinking out of holes in the ground that just can't satisfy. And Lord, as your people tonight, as Christians in the body of Christ, we examine our own lives and we think of all of the things in this life that draw our attention away from you that we look for for satisfaction and we repent of those things, Lord. And we turn back to you as a people, humbling ourselves, casting ourselves upon the rock, wanting only to be satisfied with you alone, lest we become complainers like some of these were. We know that this book was written for us, as Paul said. Now, as your heads are bowed and you're still praying and examining your heart, perhaps you've examined and found that you're not even a Christian yet. You've been looking so many other places for satisfaction, and those things have turned you empty, only emptier. You feel so empty tonight because everything you've tried hasn't produced what you thought it would produce. You just have a, a bigger appetite to be fulfilled. You may have tried relationships, never found the right one. Wealth, business pursuits, even religion, they are all empty apart from a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, you need your sins forgiven. You need deliverance even as the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and you need to rest upon that rock of Christ. Before we close this service tonight, I'd like to give you that opportunity to make Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior. I challenge you, if you don't know Christ, to receive Him into your heart right now and watch Him change you forever. Watch Him give you that satisfaction, the answers that you've been looking for. If you'd like to receive Jesus Christ, and when I say this and give this invitation, I'm speaking to those who are serious tonight about it, who are willing to turn from their sin forsake everything behind them and follow Jesus Christ completely. A whole genuine conversion. If you want to do that tonight and make Jesus your Lord and Savior, I'd like you to raise your hand and I'll pray for you before we close this service. If you want to give your life to Jesus tonight and you mean business, then you raise your hand right now before we close this service. Raise it up and keep it up in the air. Anybody take that challenge to receive Jesus Christ and follow Him tonight? If you mean it, raise your hand right now. Say, yep, Lord, save me. I want to know you personally. I want to experience that satisfaction. Raise your hand up high in the air. God bless you. Right on.
Anybody else? God has new life for you. Anybody else accept that challenge to come to Jesus Christ? To have all the past forgiven and to come to know Him? Anybody else? Raise your hand up. God bless you back there. We're not going to wait much longer, but if God is speaking to your heart, listen to Him. Open up your heart right now and say, I take you at your word, Lord. I want to know that the past is forgiven and I have a new future, a new start. Anybody else? You can put your hands down now. Let's all stand. As we sing this last song, a few of you tonight who have raised your hand and said, I am willing to break with the past, to take a new start, a new walk of faith. I'm going to ask you to do something that maybe you've never thought of before or anybody asked you to do, and that is to get up from where you're standing, to find the closest aisle and to walk down that aisle and come to the front of this auditorium. And I'd like to pray a word of prayer to accept Jesus Christ tonight before we go. If you're with a friend or a relative, perhaps that friend or relative could bring you down to encourage you and stand with you. If you didn't raise your hand, but the Holy Spirit of God has spoken to your heart and said, give me your life tonight, then you come and you obey him as well. And you give your life publicly to Jesus Christ. You begin to come now. Are the rock of my salvation. You are the strength of my life. You are my hope and my inspiration. Lord, raise your hand over here and over here. You come now and receive Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid.
you've come forward, those of you who have, I want to lead you in a word of prayer. Uh, there's friends standing with you. There's counselors standing off to the side because we want to give you a Bible after we pray with you. But if you've come forward, I'd like you to, right now, maybe this is the first time you, you've prayed from your heart what you're about to pray. You've really meant this. But I want you to say what I say out loud to the Lord. Say it after me. I'm going to lead you in prayer. I'm going to sort of give you a model to follow. I'm going to break it up in small pieces, and you just repeat it after me. It's not a formula. It's not a mantra or an incantation. It's a way that you can say the right things to the Lord from your heart. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Do it personally. Tune us all out for a minute. And just, the Lord is listening to your heart right now. And so, pray to Him right now, would you? After me, say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior right now. I know that I am a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. Take all of my past and wash me white as snow. Tonight I become your disciple. Help me to follow you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Best thing you ever prayed. Best move you ever made. You came home tonight. You came home. Now your life is built upon the rock. It's, you got that foundation. You have friends around you. You have a youth pastor right next to you. You have counselors and men of God over here. Uh, pastors and counselors, we want to give you a Bible, spend about five, six, seven minutes with you, explain what it means to grow in the Lord, how we can help you grow and what it is to be a part of the body of Christ. So if you've come forward, you can even co go with your friends right over here, and uh, we'd like to spend a few moments with you, would you? God bless you. Awesome. I pray this week that the Lord would satisfy your soul with His presence, that you'd wake up daily, early, to spend time drinking from the right wells. Be satisfied with Him. Labor in the Word. Meditate on the Scripture day and night. Don't just take once a week and have a meal. Feast continually. In Jesus' name, God bless you. 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 God bless you.